0: Brexit means Brexit, and we're going to make a success of it.
1: We have got a cast-iron assurance and a guarantee from the British government. The particular problems around the Irish border are being used politically to try to frustrate Brexit.
2: Northern Ireland must leave uh, the European Union on the same terms as the rest of the United Kingdom. Northern Ireland would form part of our customs territory.
3: Hello and welcome to Brexit Republic, RTE's podcast on Brexit. I'm Tony Connolly, RTE's Europe Editor, here at the European People's Party in Zagreb. And I'm Colm O'Mungay, RTE's Deputy
4: Foreign Editor in Dublin. Each week, Brexit Republic assesses all the latest Brexit developments
3: in Brussels, London, and Dublin. This week, Jeremy Corbyn and Boris Johnson trade blows in the first TV debate of the UK election over who can get Brexit done the quickest and on what terms.
4: We'll be assessing the claims and the counterclaims. We'll be talking to a polling expert on how Brexit is playing out on the electoral landscape in the north ahead of the December 12th election.
3: I'll be looking at the impact Brexit has made here at the EPP Congress in Croatia and deciphering some of the signals over what those trade negotiations are going to be like if indeed Boris Johnson does get a working majority on December 12th.
4: So first, Tony, to Croatia, where you are at the moment and where some of Dublin is in the form of Leo Varadkar at the moment. What's the mood like amongst Europe's centre-right in Croatia?
3: Well, it's been a very interesting couple of days here, Colm, because the EPP, the European People's Party, which was the dominant force in European politics for a long time, uh, they have really suffered in the past uh, while they lost 35 seats in the European Parliament elections. Uh, Back in May and they've seen their appeal being really challenged and undercut by, I suppose, voters who are perhaps drifting to the far right, perhaps drifting to the Greens uh, or drifting over to the to the Liberals in the centre. And they've really also seen a big reorientation in. Their geographical appeal, uh, now for the first time, the bigger number of centre-right MEPs come from Central and Eastern Europe. Um, so that has changed the the whole uh, outlook, I think, and the complexion of the European People's Party, which has been dominated by the big parties in Europe, like the CDU in Germany, the, Pe- the Popular Party, the People's Party in Spain. The Conservatives at one time, of yeah, course, were members of the time. European People's Party. Once upon a time, until they jumped ship, uh, with interesting consequences, uh, which we all know about today. Um, uh, and uh, Italy, of course, uh, always had a, a, a prominent uh, prime minister in the European People's Party as well. But they they are doing a bit of soul searching at the moment. Uh, among the key elements at the Congress in uh, Croatia. Has- been the election of Donald Tusk uh, as president of the European People's Party. He, of course, is stepping down as European Council president. He's going to be replaced shortly by Charles Michel, the uh, former Belgian prime minister. Uh, but he's obviously not going quietly into that dark night. Uh, he's uh, wants to keep a prominent role in politics, so he'll be... Uh, at the helm of the European People's Party, and I think trying to bridge that gap between uh, Western Europe and Eastern and Central Europe, which, of course, as we know, has been badly shaken by the uh, fairly uh, hardline uh, populist and, uh, at times, far-right politics of uh, the Fidesz party from Hungary, uh, Viktor Orbán's party. They, of course, were members of the uh, EPP but following months of controversy, uh, Fidesz have been suspended, and uh, Donald Tusk will have to figure out whether that uh, suspension should be an expulsion altogether or whether there'll be some way for uh, the mainstream uh, centre right to coax uh, Viktor Orban uh, back into uh, the European People's Party. Um, also, a big worry for the EPP is that they've been completely outflanked on uh, green issues. They probably lost ground to the Greens uh, and will be losing ground again, I think, in Germany to the Greens. So they've been looking at how they can uh, try and uh, gain some momentum, get some uh, limelight on green issues. And uh, Leo Varadkar today, speaking at the uh, conference, said that you know the the green issues often push people to the to the fringes uh, whereas a center right party should be able to Take bring everybody along uh, to make yeah to to make progress on green issues because of course if you want to reduce uh, carbon emissions you, you need to get industry on board and so on that was the essential uh, uh, point he was making um so that's been the the general tenor of this meeting here, uh, Helen McEntee, who is Ireland's European Affairs Minister. She was appointed uh, or voted as one of the uh, the vice presidents of the European People's Party.
4: Uh, before we get to the, the final press conference of that and remarks made about Brexit, was Brexit at all a running theme in this conference or was it up for mention or has that as a major issue for the parties involved, past insofar as it was ever the foremost burning concern amongst any of them?
3: No, it wasn't a burning concern at, at this con- Congress at all. Uh, I mean, people are really focused on trying to recover some of the losses that the EPP have made. A lot of talk about climate change. Um, they had a panel discussion on climate change where they had a, a key expert with charts and everything talking about all of the uh, the metrics and indications and indicators of climate change and how bad things are looking and what industry and and the the globe the the the, you know organization of governments have to actually do to avert and uh, reverse climate change so that that's been a key issue um, and a bit of soul searching as well following the European elections. But Brexit, I have to say, was not a major theme. Although Manfred Weber, who, of course, a year ago at the EPP Congress remember in Helsinki, uh, when he was, remember him, yeah, when he was elected uh, or appointed as their main candidate to be the uh, new commission president, uh, that, of course, uh, died a death. And we have uh, Ursula von der Leyen, uh, who's the commission president now, of course, Uh, Well, once uh, the new commission is inaugurated at the beginning of December, it looks like uh, he gave a speech in which he talked about going to an Irish farmhouse and, uh, you know, encountering the look of fear in the eyes of uh, ordinary Irish folk over what he described as cups of strong Irish tea, uh, to which most people would say he just meant tea. (laughs) <laughs> um <laughs> unless uh, so they that, added that was, something uh, to his tea but he was talking about uh his experiences which obviously made some impact on him when he went to ireland uh uh on the Brexit issue um, and he talked about the solidarity that Ireland had been given by the rest of the EU as something that Europe uh, should be proud about. And, uh, of course, Leo Varadkar picked up on that theme as well. But uh, overall, Brexit wasn't a major issue uh, at this Congress.
4: Now, as you said, bringing people together and bringing people with them was one of the things that was mentioned at that climate debate in the EPP conference earlier. It was also something Jeremy Corbyn touched on in the first TV head-to-head debate between the two main parties in the UK, Jeremy Corbyn and Boris Johnson went face-to-face on ITV. What did we learn?
3: Both candidates were restricted to answers of no more than 30 seconds, so we didn't learn a huge amount uh, from the debate uh, on on Brexit. This was a somewhat unsatisfactory format because neither side could you know, really get into the detail of Brexit, and the detail is what's important uh, to people and, and to voters, uh, although many people at this stage are, in the UK are turned off by a lot of the detail around Brexit and Brexit itself and of course is I think what Boris Johnson sees as one of his main selling points. Uh, he keeps this mantra going of get Brexit done because he's trying to trade on that mm. belief that a lot of voters are just fed up with it and brought it off and they just want to get it done and he's promising to deliver that and then to deliver uh, you know, a a future of prosperity built around uh, fresh free trade agreements that the UK is going to strike uh, around the world. Um, so the the tenor and tone of the debate were very much both sides trying to score quick points with voters and trying to catch each other out. So, uh, Boris Johnson kept trying to provoke Jeremy Corbyn into saying what way he would. Uh, campaign for, uh, if there was a second referendum, would he campaign to leave or remain in the European Union? And he was trying to, to uh, maintain this uh, idea that Labour is hopelessly confused uh, and divided on Brexit. Um, Jeremy Corbyn, for his part, Uh, talked about getting a three month negotiation with the EU and then after six months putting that new negotiation to uh, the British people, saying that that would be the best way forward. there was a bit of sparring over how long it might take for the UK to get a free trade agreement by the end of December, or would it take longer? Uh, a bit of interesting sparring as well, which we can hear in a minute, uh, over whether or not there was actually a trade border down the Irish Sea as a result of the withdrawal agreement that Boris Johnson finally uh, re- renegotiated with the EU. Um, uh, and uh, you know, overall, this was a case of both sides really trying to, you know, get get sort of brief uh, and recognisable points scored. I think Jeremy Corbyn also was trying to get Boris Johnson Uh, On the NHS issue, that is something that Labour feels is a bit of an Achilles heel for the Tories. Uh, This idea that in a free trade agreement with the United States, which Boris Johnson wants to negotiate fairly quickly, uh, the NHS would be up for grabs and uh, that uh, big pharma and uh, American uh, pharmaceutical companies would be able to get access to the NHS. So uh, this was another thing that he was trying to get in. But overall, there wasn't a huge amount that we learned uh, from this debate.
4: In the opening statements, both candidates had about a minute in their opening statements, and sadly, I, I decided to count how long it took each candidate to get into the mentions of Brexit. So it took Jeremy Corbyn, it was thirty over 30 seconds before he got, in, got into it, and he only talked about it for around six seconds. By contrast, Boris Johnson got into it within 10 seconds. And Brexit dominated it. So his big selling point is Brexit, Brexit, Brexit. Get Brexit done. Brexit will unlock the potential of the economy. And then we will start spending on all of the things we want to start spending on. Jeremy Corbyn says, look, we'll let the people decide. We'll give you a Brexit. And the Brexit that Boris Johnson wants you to give, as you said, uh, is about opening up public services in the UK and selling off the NHS. But he's less comfortable or... Certainly, putting less emphasis on the Brexit part of the election platform.
3: Yeah, I mean, clearly, um, you know, Boris Johnson is trying to use uh, the fact that he has done this Brexit deal, uh, what he calls his oven-ready Brexit uh, deal, uh, or a great new deal, as as everyone in the Tory Party robotically keeps repeating uh, ad nauseum, um, to to try and appeal to that cohort of British voters who are frankly fed up with the uh, the whole Brexit process after the past over the past three years. Um, and Jeremy Corbyn, by contrast, is much more keen to get the issue away from Brexit and onto public services, onto social care, uh, onto the NHS. And of course, the, the Labour Party have also this week uh, just revealed their manifesto, which is a fairly radical manifesto, uh, talking about a windfall tax on oil companies. Um, they've had their big uh, policy proposal on broadband uh, and so on. So uh, we can hear now actually uh, an excerpt from uh, or an edited down version of that TV debate to give people a, a, feel, a feel of uh, what they were saying.
1: Uh, we certainly will come out on January the 31st because we have a deal that, as I say, is oven ready. It's ready to, to go. And it's approved, as I say, and not just by our friends and partners in the EU, but by every one of the 635 Conservative candidates, and it delivers everything that we wanted from Brexit. Our whole country comes out, entire and perfect. England, Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland together. And there is a sharp distinction between what we are proposing, getting Brexit done, unleashing the potential of this country, and next year, dither and delay, with another referendum on the EU, when Jeremy Corbyn, uh, Mr Corbyn, cannot tell us Which side he would campaign on. Okay, thank you, Mr. Johnson. Your time's up for your first response, your first response to Kath's question. Our
5: priority is obviously to get it sorted. We will, within three months, negotiate a credible leave option with the European Union and within six months put that to a referendum of the British people to decide between that option of leaving whilst protecting jobs and trade and the Good Friday Agreement with Europe, or remaining as full members of the European Union. That will be the choice put before the British people. The idea that the Prime Minister Boris Johnson's deal can be dealt with and finished by the end of January is such nonsense. What he's proposing? is a trade deal with the United States that would take at least seven years to negotiate, whilst at the same time saying he would negotiate a special trade deal with the European Union. The two things are actually incompatible.
1: Thank you, Mr Corbyn. So let's... People said that we couldn't do a new deal in three months. People said that they would never open up the treaty, they said it was impossible to do. Actually, we succeeded. And we have a great new deal that, as I say, is oven-ready, ready to go. And I, I hear what uh, Jeremy you mint say coin? Would you, mint a, coin, would you mint a new coin for December 2020? Uh, I, I hear what people say about... <laughs> about no, uh, we, we have ample time to do a fantastic uh, free trade deal uh, with our, our friends and partners in the EU because we're already in a state of perfect alignment, both for tariffs and for quotas, and we still have not heard... Julie, you will notice there is a. Gla- I've answered your questions, but there is a glaring lacuna still in this debate. We still don't know. I'm sorry to say, we still don't know. Yeah, well, there, there is a, a vast inanition. Okay, here, a, a, a allow anigma, Mr. Cor- Mr. Corbyn to respond to the question Corbyn from Mr. Johnson. Is he going to campaign for the deal he proposes to do, or is he going to invite his Labour colleagues to destroy well, let's, let's the, constra- the contract that. that he's created? Thank you, Mr. Is Johnson.
5: He, that's, let's that's what I've said, and it's very clear, very clear three months to negotiate, six months for a referendum, and that will bring that process to an end. What we know. Of the government's proposals. What we know of what Mr. Johnson has done is a series of secret meetings with the United States in which they were proposing to open up our NHS markets, as they call them, to American companies. Freedom of Information Act request was made in order to find out what happened at these meetings. That's what happened at these meetings. Every single line of this document redacted out. A document here, a document here of. U.S.-U.K. negotiations, summary of specific okay. negotiations. objectives. Let's allow objectives. Ms, Mr. Full Johnson. market access for U.S. products to
1: our National Health Service. You're going to sell Johnson, our National I'm Health Service
5: out <laughs> to the United States and Big
1: Pharma. This is what the people of Northern Ireland don't We've got a know... a trade deal the down pe-
5: the Irish... No, se- the tra- trade no, border down the Irish not Sea. At all, not
1: at all. The, uh, Northern Ireland is part of the customs territory of the U.K. It's, it's there in in black and white, and what the people of Northern Ireland do not know, and, they can, and part of our tariff schedules and, and everything else, what the people of Northern Ireland do not know, and nor do the people of Ireland, is what kind of deal Jeremy Corbyn proposes to do. Okay. And he's got 100 of his, his MPs, and we still don't know, by the way, uh, what he proposes to okay. do, nor whether he is in favour of right. it or against All it. All right. The only We have 100 of his MPs who have already said Thank that you. they would vote against it. Most of the shadow cabinet Thank you, Mr are against Johnson. Mr Corbyn... The a quick only response. problem Thank you, a quick response the only
5: with what Mr Johnson just said is that he said exactly the opposite when he spoke to a DUP conference. You said there would be no border down the Irish Sea. And well, there is.
4: The debate itself lasted the guts of an hour and as we've just listened to there, half an hour of that was on Brexit, which we've edited together enough to give a, a shorter sample of, of what went on. In terms of who came out of it more clear on what they want from Brexit. Boris Johnson was selling a concrete deal on a concrete position on that deal. Jeremy Corbyn was leaving the door open to being all things to all people. He was making a virtue of that, saying consensus. Other people who may be tired of Brexit may not see it that way.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think the, the I suppose, a snapshot um response from voters fairly soon after the debate came from YouGov, which is a, one of the more reliable organisations in the UK, uh, gave about 51% to Boris Johnson, 49% to Jeremy Corbyn. I think Johnson probably was on fairly uh, solid ground on his Brexit message. Uh, although I'd say for both men, there were moments where the audience simply laughed at them because they simply didn't believe uh, what the two candidates were saying. And notably, Jeremy Corbyn on, you know, n- not being clear. really uh, being clear about whether or not uh, he would vote uh, or would recommend a leave or a remain position. Uh, once Labour has renegotiated the withdrawal agreement uh, and set up a referendum for later in 2020. They laughed um, at Boris Johnson Boris on the Johnson importance of
4: truth. He said it was, he felt truth was important and the audience guffawed.
3: Yeah, I mean, this, this is... Uh, this is one example of where uh, a number of commentators have said that the audience actually were the winners in the <laughs> debate uh, because of the the clear disdain that they had uh, at at key points for uh, the two the two candidates. Uh, interesting as well that Boris Johnson insisted that there would be no trade border down the Irish Sea. I think we heard that clip from him there, um, which again is is uh, an extraordinary thing to say when it, it is absolutely clear that uh, there will be uh, formalities and checks and uh, a customs uh, differential between Great Britain and Northern Ireland uh, once the withdrawal agreement uh, protocol on Ireland takes effect at the also end of the transition. Also known as friction. There will be friction uh, on, on the movement of goods between Great Britain and Northern Ireland and vice versa, although it will be up to the Joint Committee, which is going to be set up by the EU and the UK, to manage that whole process. So we don't really know for sure yet how onerous those checks will be, but uh, on paper they will be there because... Again, to remind people if goods are coming from Great Britain into Northern Ireland, uh, the risk is that they will enter the Irish Republic and, by extension, the EU27 single market. And because you can't have a customs or, re- or regulatory border on the land, uh, along the land border, then uh, those checks have to happen at the point of entry into Northern Ireland, which would be the ports and airports. Uh, in Northern Ireland. But again, uh, you know, we, we'll have to wait and see. The Joint Committee addresses that particular process to see what kinds of, of goods, what categories of goods will get some kind of exemption um, from customs or regulatory controls uh, and, and what and, and will what we'll have to actually undergo those controls and, and where, uh, you know, a customs uh, tariff or duty will apply. Uh, where uh, rebates can, can happen and so on, and where those exemptions can apply.
4: In terms of timings, Tony, Boris Johnson promising to get Brexit done on January 31st, and we've talked about some of the timings and the, the, the other business that has to be conducted in the course of next year. Jeremy McCorbin saying... Three months of negotiation for Labour's new deal which would be closer alignment uh, with the European Union and then another six months to conclude uh, the final deal on that. There is somewhat of an issue though with Jeremy Corbyn's proposals in that going right back to the start of Brexit negotiations the the freedoms of the European Union, one of them being freedom of movement, was going to be regarded as a sticking point. That's something he wants to constrain. It would be hard to see how you could achieve some kind of a derogation from freedom of movement within three months on top of everything else and then conclude a final agreement and an exit within six months and get a referendum done and dusted in that time frame as well.
3: Yeah, well, I mean, to take Jeremy Corbyn's proposals first, and, and we've just been going through them because they've just published their manifesto. I mean, first of all, uh, he is talking about uh, a permanent uh, UK-wide customs union. So in other words, the UK as a whole would uh, remain in the EU's customs union. Um, now, if he's talking about renegotiating the withdrawal agreement and getting that in there, that's not going to happen Um we remember that Theresa May did manage to get a UK-wide customs uh, union into the withdrawal agreement, but that was the whole point about that was that it was temporary, and it was only going to kind of tide people over from the end of the transition until a free trade agreement uh, was negotiated. So the reason he can't get a permanent customs union in some kind of renegotiation of the withdrawal agreement is because the withdrawal agreement is about the divorce. It's not about the future. Uh, so whether or not the UK stays in a customs union with the EU, that's a matter for the future trade negotiation. So uh, that means his timetables are a little bit out uh, on that calculation. Now, he could, uh, you know, it, it, the way the EU sees this is, like, they, they probably want um, nothing less than, than to have to, reopen the whole process again. Um, people are exhausted and fed up and, uh, as we've said many times in this podcast, uh, European capitals uh, have a lot more to worry about th- than to be relentlessly grinding uh, on with uh, future negotiations on Brexit. But, um, of course, you ca- You would have a scenario where uh, a Labour government, if that were to come to pass, uh, would, would have to accept or, or that the, Boris Johnson's withdrawal agreement would be imposed on a Labour government. And of course that would be politically very, very difficult for the EU to, to insist on. So they would have to sit down with Jeremy Corbyn and figure out what he wants. Um, they could probably go back and say, well, if you wanna to go to the UK wide Customs Union on a temporary basis to solve the Irish question, then of course we can do that. Um, but that's probably as far as it gets. If you look at the other things that Jeremy Corbyn has unveiled in his manifesto, uh, he does talk about very close alignment with the single market. Again, that would not be something that would be negotiated as part of the withdrawal agreement. That would be a future relationship issue. Uh, he's talked about uh, the UK uh, being part of the uh, or maintaining the European arrest warrant. Um, you know, again, that's something that would be for the future to 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 work out. Um, being part of the European sphere for research and science and so on. Again, that would be for the future. But when you look down each of these um, elements of the Labour Manifesto, each one of them commits the UK to to being back either inside or very close to uh, European Union structures. And of course, if you then say, well, we're gonna put this whole idea to uh, a referendum, people might say, well, what's the point Of Brexit if we're going to be back inside or close to all of these European uh, spheres of of activity. Uh, So so that's something to bear in mind. Um, Boris Johnson of course has claimed very confidently that he can get not only a free trade agreement done by the end of the year but also uh, the overall future relationship. Now of course it's not just about trade, they they have to work out what the security relationship is going to be, they have to work out uh, the whole question of uh, uh, URATOM, the, the atomic research uh, element of the European Union what role would the UK want to play in that um, what would judicial and police cooperation look like uh, what would uh, research and scientific and educational cooperation look like uh, so uh, b- by all uh, calculations it's very hard to see how this could be done within uh, 11 months because that's already really all they're going to have and of course as we discussed last week on the podcast they're also going to have to get into the fisheries negotiations and those negotiations are intimately linked to the free trade agreement uh, which means that by july the 1st if the uk hasn't struck a deal on fisheries then they're going to have to delay and the delay will not just be for fisheries, it will be for the whole thing, because uh, fisheries and the free trade agreement are linked in the eyes of uh, the European Union. That's what it's, that's what is spelled out in the political declaration that both sides have signed up to. Um, so right. I think we're going to get into a situation very quickly that uh, Boris Johnson will have to seek an extension to the transition, uh, and that, that will be another political problem that he'll have very quickly on his hands.
4: Which brings us neatly back to Zagreb, finally, where you are, and you were... uh at, the, at a press conference at the conclusion of the European People's Party Congress uh, in Zagreb. Who was at it? What did you ask them? And what did, and, uh, let's hear what they said. It
3: was a meeting between Leo Varadkar and Andrei Plankovic, who's the Croatian prime minister who was hosting uh, the uh, EPP Congress. And of course, he's an interesting figure because Croatia assumes the presidency of the EU next year. So he's going to be in the, uh, you know, the country hosting, the Prime Minister hosting the presidency when these Brexit uh, future relationship negotiations get underway. That is assuming that uh, there is uh, a majority for one side or the other in uh, December at the election. And so I asked him what he felt about Boris Johnson's confidence that everything could be wrapped up by the end of next year. And this is what he told me.
0: There are various scenarios, obviously. As I said in the introductory remarks, if uh, Prime Minister Johnson manages to form a new government, we ratify the withdrawal agreement on the EU side, on the UK side, Croatia will do its best to, first of all, very swiftly embark on the negotiations that will end up with adopting a relevant negotiating framework for the future contractual relations between the UK and the EU. We are liaising closely with Michel Barnier and his team as well as with the other partners. We will, of course, bear in mind that the transition period is actually extremely short, given the exit saga, to leave ourselves only 11 months for the new relationship is relatively ambitious. But I think, you know, where there is a will, there is a way and uh, I would say that from our side we will be a facilitator that we pick up those areas of priorities that are essential for the good relationship between the UK and the EU, of course bearing in mind everything that has a clear and tangible interest for Ireland, because it's not the same if you're looking at this relationship from an Irish point of view or Croatian, but we'll be there to share the maximum solidarity and hopefully do it on time.
3: So, also at that news conference, I asked Leo Varadkar had he had a chance to digest the Labour Party manifesto, and would he be interested in this idea of a customs union, a permanent customs union, and close alignment uh, with the single market. Here's what he had to say.
2: Uh, I'll just answer um, uh, answer your first question first. Uh, Haven't had a chance to study the. Our British Labour Party manifesto, um, but what I can say on behalf of the Irish government is um, whoever is in government uh, in the UK in a few weeks' time, whoever is Prime Minister, uh, will be happy to sit down with them, uh, listen to what they have to say uh, and work with them. Uh, and in the hypothetical scenario that uh, a new UK government wants to talk about um, a customs union uh, with the European Union or a closer alignment with the single market, uh, you know that's something that we've always been open to. Uh, and something that we'd be very happy to um, talk to the UK government about. Um, But let's see how the election goes. Um, What I think we can be assured of uh, is that no matter what the result is, um, we are in a position to say to the people of Ireland that there won't be a hard border between north and south, uh, and that the common travel area uh, um, and everything that goes with it is protected, and we will move on to the next phase uh, when that comes, um, hopefully in the next few weeks. Uh, I suppose the only outcome that would be problematic would be another hung parliament, in which case uh, we may be back in the situation where uh, we have a House of Commons that isn't in a position to ratify any agreement, but let's cross that bridge uh, when we come to it.
4: And that was Leo Varadkar there. What he definitely isn't interested in, Tony, is, is a hung parliament, which could be interpreted in some quarters as a bit of a better the devil you know bet. Let's just stick with the deal that's there and see if Boris Johnson can get it through. But. That may not be what he's saying. He certainly was left himself open to doing business with a future Prime Minister, Corbyn, if that were to come to pass.
3: Yeah, I think so. I mean, clearly everybody in Brussels and uh, across Europe dreads the idea of another hung parliament because that just brings us back to uh, endless deadlock uh, and and agony. Um, and, you know, with, with no side being able to grasp some kind of way forward. Um, so uh, you can see that Leo Varadkar doesn't want that. Uh, he, he also is uh, leaving open the prospect of a potential upset in the election, according to the polls, at least, uh, with a Jeremy, government government, G- Jeremy Corbyn government or a Jeremy Corbyn-led government. Uh, so that's why he was saying, look, whoever gets elected, we'll sit down with them uh, and hear what they have to say. Uh, and he was quite clear there that, you know, of course, Ireland would be interested in a customs union uh, UK-wide permanently and close alignment with the single market because of course that would uh, massively uh, alleviate the situation on the uh, on the island of Ireland in terms of two-way trade between uh, Great Britain and Ireland and also it, it would also have a bearing on how onerous that Irish protocol would be uh, when it comes to Northern Ireland and the prospect that businesses in Northern Ireland would have friction uh, when dealing with uh, the rest of the UK. Um, so he's obviously keeping his options open there, but uh, bear in mind that you know nobody in Brussels or any of the capitals uh, is looking forward to any prospect of a hung parliament.
4: Oh, which brings us neatly to Northern Ireland where Bill White of Lucid Talks, a polling company in Northern Ireland, has been running a rule over the numbers and the moving, the shaking going on uh, across the constituencies uh, in Northern Ireland. He spoke to me just a bit earlier on and I asked him if this was in Northern Ireland particularly a Brexit election.
6: Yes, it is. I mean, uh, to be fair, it's following very much the agenda in Great Britain in that context. It is actually... Um more, a little bit more complicated than that here because Brexit has fired up the whole debate about Northern Ireland's constitutional position within the United Kingdom and of course has increased the impetus, uh, as you've seen in terms of Sinn Féin's um, publicity and indeed their conference and their Ardesh at the weekend, that um, it's just increased the whole push towards a unity poll and the possibility of, of having a border poll. So it has, it has actually been mixed in with that, uh, but that's still very much d- driven by the Brexit agenda, the whole um, questioning of Northern Ireland's position within the United Kingdom.
4: So how does it look? I think it was Tolstoy said every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way, so every Brexit election <laughs> is Brexit in its own way. What does it look like in Northern Ireland? What kind of things are people looking at?
6: Well again, Northern Ireland, as you know, it's very much split along community lines. The, the unionist side I mean our Polling shows that the unionist community are eighty to ninety percent against Boris Johnson's current withdrawal Brexit withdrawal agreement. Um, there is a small section of unionism that, of course, there is about thirty percent of unionists voted Remain. Now, within that, there is a small section who would consider uh, Boris Johnson's deal and indeed were, but, but they were actually more supportive of the the backstop arrangement. Uh, but still, the overwhelming majority of unionists would be against Boris Johnson's deal and want to see it. Stopped in some way, if that's possible. On the nationalist side, uh, there'd be very much, of course, it's very much pro-Remain, the nationalist Republican side. And, uh, you know, there's a growing impetus within that community to look at the possibility of Northern Ireland leaving the UK, joining the Republic of Ireland. And one, one of the major reasons of that would be, of course, that Northern Ireland would then be fully integrated with Ireland and be a full member of the European Union. So that's driving the agenda, uh, you know, across both communities. And uh, it really is uh, raising the temperature of politics in, in Northern Ireland.
4: And what are we seeing in terms of the Alliance Party? They would like to say they're from, really, they belong in neither community, but they're unapologetically remain. What's hmm. What's been going on with their support in the context well, of this election?
6: They're, 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 as you know, they had a very successful European election just a few months back when their party leader grabbed one of the three Northern Ireland seats. And Alliance, as you say, are very pro-remain. Their support has been growing quite substantially, and they had a great boost in that election uh, because, mainly, because they're pro-remain. Mainly because the remain elements within the community don't feel they're being led properly by the traditional parties of the DUP and Sinn Féin, particularly on the unionist side. I mean, there's no, if you look at the analysis of the vote that Naomi Long got in the European election, the, the alliance leader who won one of the three seats, if you analyse where her votes came from, uh, there's substantial numbers from moderate unionist Remain-type people, middle class maybe a Is little bit Is the, it the sort of the Sylvia
4: Herman yes. vote?
6: the Sylvia Hermit was a very good way of putting it yes indeed that actually swung over in behind the lions a lot up to now, a lot of that moderate type of unionist vote was still sticking with the Ulster Unionist Party. The more moderate, it's seen as the more moderate unionist party. But they're now swinging unapologetically. They're moving away from the unionist camp completely and actually supporting uh, the Alliance Party, as you say, are neutral in the constitutional position. But they very much support the Good Friday Agreement that any sort of change in Northern Ireland's position must be driven by consent within Northern Ireland. But So so they, they are switching. Now, it's, the big question is... All that support, no me long, got 106,000 votes. The big question is how much of that 106,000 votes will still go out and vote Alliance in this upcoming Westminster election? I mean, that is the question. Certainly our polling showing there's still a substantial support for the Alliance Party. But of course, under the cruel first-past-the-post election system, Alliance could do well. They could come second in three or four seats. But whether they actually win a seat is is, is questionable.
4: And the European elections always seen, and no more than local elections, seen as second order elections when people are putting representatives into a parliament, or in the case of Northern Ireland, Mm -hmm. electing people in a parliamentary election. Some take their seats, some don't. Are, Are they seen differently as far as the alliance traditionally, or are we seeing anything in the polling that shows? Anyway, way a, a widening of the Alliance base or even a growth of it in this context?
6: Well, certainly it is, because it has been growing in the west of the province, but not to the extent that we put in a challenge for any of the Westminster seats. As you well know, you know, the Westminster seats first past the post. It suits the big parties. It suits the parties that have got big supporter bases. And again, that applies across in Great Britain as well. A lot of people argue about it's a very unfair system, but that's maybe a subject for another day. But the alliance support is mostly concentrated in the east of the province, so the seats they're targeting, East Belfast where Nomi Long is running again, uh, putting in a strong challenge to the sitting MP um, uh, Gavin Robinson. And then North Down, where Sylvia Herman, as you said, is standing down. No, that was her former seat. Again, Alliance will be challenging strongly uh, for that seat uh, uh, against the Democratic Unionist Party. But um, so those are their two main chances. South Belfast, yes, they were putting in a strong challenge, but the SDLP now have a very strong candidate there in Hannah, And a lot of that moderate uh, middle ground vote, to use that term, may swing in behind her because she is viewed as the best chance of unsitting the sitting MP, uh, Emma Littlepengali of the DUP. So those are the sort of three main seats that the Alliance will be targeting.
4: Is there any sign that the DUP's support has been in any way hurt, first of all, from their quite hardline leave stance? They would have been seen as almost ad idem with the European Research Group, uh, the hardline Brexit wing of, of the Tory party, which wouldn't have gone down well necessarily amongst business people and farmers in Northern Ireland in is that seen in any way in the polling as translating into the votes, or is it backed as you were basically in terms of who people support as political parties?
6: Well, yes. I mean, they, um, they we did poll on this issue what party you're going to be voting And This is in August. We're doing a, our last pre election poll next week, which will be the major one because obviously that's closer to the election. But the one in August certainly showed that the support was still pretty solid for the DUP but there was a lot of discontent among their supporter base as you say, the farmers, the business community uh, they still support the constitutional position that the DUP follow in terms of Northern Ireland's position in the UK but they have been fairly annoyed with the DUP strategy uh, they don't they think that their links close links to the ERG European Research Group have been detrimental the arrangements with the Conservative Party they think have been overplayed by the DUP so they are a bit annoyed but there's a little bit of there's nowhere else for them to vote the Ulster Unionist Party is so weak uh, which is the moderate the image is that they're the moderate Unionist Party, they're now been so weakened by the DUP onslaught over the last 10 or 15 years in election terms that um, it's very hard for them to credibly challenge in any particular um, in any particular seat, and again, the big thing the DUP have got going for them and Sinn the Féin, I come back to the point again: it is a first past the post election system, so it suits them in seats where they've got a big core vote. They may have their majority slashed in or lowered in various seats. But the bottom line is they'll still probably win those seats. So it's, um, yes, there's discontent there, but not enough for people to, not enough in terms of a big swing that would be required for any of their seats to come into danger, except the ones where they're obviously being challenged, like South Belfast and North Down, which I've, I've already mentioned.
4: And presumably then, as you say, similar with uh, Sinn Fein, things t- came down very much to. Numbers in Westminster the last time, in terms of getting withdrawal agreements over the line or blocking Brexit, or or, or, there was uh, people would have been aware of a fair amount of parliamentary chaos there that came down to some quite tight margins. Any Mm -hmm. sign at all that Sinn Féin's abstentionist policy has made anybody have a rethink there, or is it all as was?
6: No, I think it's it's very much, I think, uh, they're representing the views of their base. We did poll on that issue about 18 months, two years ago. We haven't, we've been asked to poll on it since. and we said, actually, because of the result of that poll, we didn't think it was worthwhile. It was practically <laughs> 95% support from the Sinn Féin voter base. We only polled the Sinn Féin, people who had voted Sinn Féin in four previous elections, which we have recorded on our systems. We went out to them and said, look, what about this abstentionist policy if Mary Lou MacDonald and the Sinn Féin leaders have decided to take their seats at Westminster." You know, would you support it? 90, 85, 90% were against it. Then most of the other 10, 15%. Said they would support it reluctantly if the leadership went with it. you I mean they'd go then to support the leadership? But they weren't all that enthusiastic about it. There was relatively few people who actually supported it as a standalone policy in its own right, thinking it was good for them to take their seat. So that's very much ingrained in the culture of the Republican, um, in the Republican movement. And I don't see, I can't see how Sinn Féin can change that. Certainly, if they were going to try to change it, they're not going to do it quickly. You have to bring your supporter base along with you, and it would take it would take uh, several years. Years to um, you know a few years for them to bring their right. supporter base along with them.
4: But as you say, yeah, with polling like that, that they, yeah. If you're not going to poll on it, you could hardly see a leader uh, going out to bat on it either. Would you? Would you venture uh, to suggest what might go on uh, in the uh, in in the the British election? Where, who might win out there? The Tories, Labour, Labour look to be trailing by quite some distance, and the debate the other night. Didn't look like there were any dramatic torpedo moments on either side. Would you expect things to hobble along as they are with uh, a yes. majority for the Conservatives?
6: Yeah. Well yes, I I would say yes, um the it's 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 a it's probable that the Conservatives will get an overall majority. Not a great one if you look at the analysis in the seats. It's very hard for any party nowadays under the United Kingdom system to get uh, you know the days of a hundred seat majorities I think are gone. So I think the most of the Tories the Conservatives could hope for is a twenty to thirty seat majority, which of course is still a, a good victory. Um the only alternative to that is another hung parliament very much around where we are at the moment. And there's still a reasonable chance of that happening i mean scotland are, or sorry the conservatives are ready starting up uh, starting off you know, about 10 seats, five to 10 seats down because Scotland was, it's undoubtedly, and the polling there shows that the SNP are going to have a very good election there. So they're already down, if you like, five or 10 seats. They're going to lose some seats there and they have to get back up uh, to an overall majority. So it is, it's not, um, it's not, it's quite a difficult job for the Conservatives. So it's still quite possible that, uh, you know, it still could be a hung parliament. But I, I would put it this way I mean, the the Conservatives have to, you know, Boris Johnson has to be seen to get an overall majority in this election, if he comes back in a hung parliament, then it um, uh, you know it would be viewed as a, a failure for him, and even if Jeremy Corbyn actually just holds it where it is at the moment, then it, it would be viewed as a sort of an indirect victory for him um, because he doesn't really need to win an overall majority, he just needs to hold parliament in the rough hung parliament structure which he's got at the moment. so the stakes are quite high, but I would say yes, the probability is it's looking like a small conservative uh, small conservative majority.
4: Do you measure fatigue at all, Bill, when you're polling people?
6: Indeed, well, we look at likelihood to vote. We, we ask about enthusiasm, etc. It does seem, certainly in the previous polling we did, last a few weeks ago now, to say our major pre-election poll will be next week. Um, the, it looks uh, as if it could be quite a substantial turnout because people are engaged with politics uh, they say certainly the enthusiasm seems to be there but of course that can all change, the fatigue can set in and of course you know I always say elections are a summer sport usually I mean this is winter, it's the 12th of December you can have a nice crisp cold day like you have today and it's dry but if it's windy, snowy, bad weather day that can have quite an impact on the results and uh, it depends, obviously, where the, the bad weather occurs across the uh, across the UK itself.
4: What will you be doing on election night
6: yourself? Election night, I'll be there. I'll be at the count. I'll be at the South Belfast, or the Belfast counts, actually. And, of course, the key was, the key point we'll be looking at, which we haven't, I don't think, mentioned up to now, is the North Belfast seat. I mean, that is right on the knife edge between Nigel Dodds of the DUP, the leader of the Democratic Unionist Party group in Westminster, deputy leader of the party overall, and very, very powerful figure within the party. His seat's right on the knife edge against the challenge from John Finucane of Sinn Féin. And our polling, frankly, is within the margin of error. We still are predicting Nigel Dodds to hold that seat, but it's so much within within the margin of error now that it could go either way so that'll be the most interesting seat and of course uh, the other belfast seats south belfast yes it looks as if that could be an sdlb game our poll will tell better next week our final pre-election poll huh. east belfast we're predicting gavin robbins of the dup to hold on but again that's quite a big strong challenge it will be a strong challenge from the deputy leader of the Li- or sorry the leader of the lions party uh Naomi long so three interesting seats in belfast and that's where that's where I'll be, be doing the various tallies and we'll be doing an exit poll as well. So that should tell us something on the night. So it and should we'll, be a very interesting night.
4: In the Dodds v. Finucane uh clash, will it come down to turnout on that one, where people are trying to mobilise every bit of turnout they get, and would that in any way explain why there's been a rather more concerted DUP outreach to loyalist working class communities more recently, including even representatives of paramilitaries?
6: Uh, yes, that could play into it. I mean, Nigel Dodd's one thing about it. He is a good campaigner. He's very good in the numbers. He knows where his votes come from. So he has a very good machine in the ground. But then, likewise, so is Sinn Féin. So <laughs> they both, uh, you know, they both cancelling each other out in that sort of aspect in terms of party machines uh, but certainly it would yes turnout will be a critical factor uh, I've already mentioned the weather factor i already mentioned it's a winter election which is quite exceptional for elections um, and um, a lot could depend on the turnout on the day but the numbers are still there slightly in the polling and if you look at the demographics and the makeup of the seat for Nigel Dodds, but he needs to get every vote out. He needs to make sure that all his vote and his party workers are in place to get his vote out. And and of course, we all know with elections, um, you know, David Cameron knows with referendums, so there's an element of if you like luck about it on the day. There is unknown factors and that can come into play. So it's it's it's, it's going to be a very tight result there.
4: All right, thanks a million, Bill. We will chat to you again soon.
6: No problem. Thanks. All the best. Time. Cheers. Bye bye. Thanks, man. Bye bye. And that was Bill White from Lucid
4: Talk, the polling company, speaking to me uh, earlier on. And that's it for another edition of the Brexit Republic podcast. From me, Colm O'Mungown, RT's deputy foreign editor in Dublin.
3: And from me, Tony Connolly, RTÉ's Europe editor in Zagreb. Thanks for listening.